All right, so John chapter 1. This is uh, typically, I mean, pretty much unanimously across the board, scholars believe the, the gospel of John was written last, the last gospel account written. There's some debate. Um, some people think that it was actually the last, uh, it was actually written after Revelation, after John came back from Patmos. Um, I'm not too concerned about that. I think the thing that we should be aware of is that John was writing mainly, and you see it in his epistles a lot. You see it especially in the first, the first chapter of his first epistle. He's writing to combat something known as Gnosticism. And uh, an early heresy that arose in the church wasn't so much that Jesus wasn't divine, but that, in fact, he wasn't man. He didn't come in the flesh. And John wanted to address that. And I'll actually I'll turn to the first chapter of John. John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, I'll get this down. We're in, we're in the book of John's. It says in uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and with our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with us from the Father, has manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says that anyone who denies that Christ came in the flesh is actually antichrist. He's opposed to God. This is a big deal, that God came in the flesh. In the Old Testament, David, he, he kind of gets everything together to set up the temple, and God tells him that he doesn't want him to be the one to construct the temple, that he was a man of war, but he did. He did. David loved God with all his heart. We're told that he had many fallings, stumblings. Uh, he made many mistakes. But he was a man of a repentant heart. He was a man who trusted in God. He knew uh, he wouldn't. Imp- he wouldn't impute sinners um, with their unrighteousness. That he was actually he'd show them grace, and that he would overlook their sin if they um, they had that heart of repentance toward him. But David setting up everything, getting everything in, in line for Solomon, then to step on the scene, he sets up the temple. And, to, and Solomon, when he dedicates the temple, in 1 Kings chapter 8, he, he sets up this temple that's glorious. They go through all the, um, the construction mater- materials and just how much was put into it. And 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heavens Heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, O Lord. How much less this temple, which I have built, right? The question is, will God really dwell amongst his creation with his people? Heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain him. Is is God going to really be here, right? God made a promise, and sure enough, the glory of God was revealed in the temple. But it wasn't something um, like we read in the account with Moses on the mountain, it wasn't something they could fully behold, right? The, the true glory of God. God had to stick Moses in the cleft of the rock as he passed by. He let him see his hinder parts, the afterglow. But here, what we read about the word, what we read about from John is this, we, we get this portrait, right? Because the other, the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels kind of give us this, um, this tale of what Jesus did. They give us the account of what Jesus did, right? But with John, it's who Jesus was, with, with Matthew, he was so focused on revealing to the Jews that Jesus was the one promised in the Old Testament, the 99 prophecies from the Old Testament. And 
this was done, that it would be fulfilled according to what the prophet said over and over again, giving us the genealogy to prove to the Jews that Jesus did descend from Abraham. That was a huge deal. The Messiah had to come from Abraham. Luke, right, he's writing of the perfect man, this moral man, writing for the Greeks. He, he gives the genealogy descending all the way from Adam, right, seemingly as far back as you can go. The genealogy that begins with Adam, and yet this, this moral perfection, the heart behind Jesus Christ. Mark, there's not a genealogy. He's, he's portrayed as a slave, as a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to, to, to serve others. That's what the Son of Man came to do. And so we don't get that genealogy that's written largely thought to the Romans, this perfect man, always on the move, this perfect servant, always on the move. And then he did this, and immediately after, this snapshot after snapshot with John, we go back even farther than Adam. It says in the first verse, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, um, my sister, formerly, <laughs> still is. So my sister's, uh, how do I put this? Unfortunately, my sister is divorced, but her first in-laws were Jehovah's Witnesses. And if any of you know, they like to interpret this verse as saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. Right, So this, this verse was a big hang-up for me when I first got saved, when the Lord first saved me. Was Jesus really God or is he a God? And actually, they'll, um, they've been known to quote uh, Greek scholars, one's named Dr. Julius Manti. He was, he was quoted in their literature as one that actually supported their translation of the New World, Trans, uh, New World Translation, which isn't really a translation. It's not a Bible. It's just a book. And anyway, um, Dr. Ju I actually went online and I looked up the letter that Dr. Julius Manti wrote to the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower organization, saying, like, no, I, I didn't do this. I don't support this. This is never the, the correct translation of John chapter 1, verse, chapter one, verse 1. And uh, he goes on to explain why. And he, he actually said, I want you to redact what you've written in your literature. And I want a formal apology. And it took years. It took years before they even removed it. Every time Jehovah's Witnesses claim a uh, Greek scholar, because they don't do it now, they actually say that the the eight people that have translated the New World Translation are the faithful and discreet slave, and that they remain anonymous because of their work for Jehovah. But anyway, I want to let you guys know that I've looked a lot into this verse, and if you if you take what was largely circulated at the time of Christ, which you know John is ministering in the first century A.D. If you take the Greek Septuagint, which is a translation that came hundreds of years before Christ by Hebrew scholars into Greek so that it was uh, more accessible across the Roman Empire for, for people in that Koine Greek language, you guys might not care, but I want you to catch on to a few things just to drill this point home. In the Greek, in the, in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, you guys might remember that, that phrase, in the beginning, right? That is the opening words of the book of Genesis, of our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Greek says, anarche apoisen halaga, ha theos. Sorry, I want to say, so anarche apoisen ha theos. You say, what does that matter? I don't understand what that means. Okay, the first two words, anarche, in the beginning. Anarche apoisen ha theos. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, 
It says, so Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God created. It takes anarche, that same two first words. It says, anarche ha logos. Instead of, in the beginning, God, it says, in the beginning, the word. In the beginning was the word. And it goes on to say, and then there's this debacle about, well, they use two different words for, for God. They use theon and theos, which says, I know you guys might not care. This is really cool, I think. Says an archaean halagos, kailagos, and prostong theon. I do not speak Greek, but I do I do really appreciate it. Just so you guys know, I'm not a scholar, but an archaean halagos, kailagos, and prostong theon. That first word for God, and that is, and the word was with God. And then and then to differentiate, just so you guys get this straight, between the Father and the Son, John uses a different word for God, for Jesus. He says. Anarche and halagos, kailagos and proston theon, kaitheos, theos and halagos. And God was the word. That's the kaitheos and halagos. That is the same exact word used in the Septuagint that was, that was circulated in John's time for God in the very first verse of the Bible. Jesus Christ is, in fact, God. And that is what, that is what John is saying in the first verse of his gospel. This genealogy goes all the way back as far as you can go. It doesn't say, in the beginning became the word. It says, in the beginning was. As far back as you can go, he was there. He already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so this kind of, this, um, this, he's, he's, He's pampering to both Greeks and Jews because they understood, they both believed that there was this word, this wisdom, this law that was used in order to uh, to create, in order for creation to come forth. There was a uh, there was an order to creation. So he's he's addressing both the whole world because the gospels previously were written to specific groups of people. Very um, skillful. It was it was aimed. It was very direct. It was skillful. But John, now he's the one who talks constantly about the world, right? He came to the world. He made the world. The world didn't accept him. Um, the world didn't know him. He says things like that. God did not send the son to condemn the world, but that through him the world would be saved. He constantly talks about the world, the cosmos, the Greek word, uh, cosmos. And But now as he's addressing both Greeks and Jews, he's talking about how this word wasn't just preexistent. It's actually been eternal. It is, in fact, God himself. He's correcting the Greek, the, the Jewish understanding even of a pre-existent word to creation that was created by God. He's saying no. This pre-existent word, this pre-existent wisdom, this pre-existent design that's sown within everything is eternal as God himself. And this can go so many different directions. But what you guys probably already know of, what you're well aware of, is what the, he, the Human Genome Project has, has discovered, right? We're all related, right? But this DNA, this structure... These four letters that make up, uh, these four bases that make up the written code inside every one of our cells are aligned, are constructed in certain ways that they say there's four billion different ways that they're um, constructed together to make different words. I said four, didn't I? I meant three. I don't know why I said four. Three billion different words written by our DNA. Our DNA is a complex code that then tells our body how to construct itself. And every single cell in your body has the same DNA, unless it's written to have the same DNA. Of course, there's 
errors, there's uh, things that go wrong and the transcribing of DNA. But within DNA, even though every cell has the same DNA, at some point within the gestation process of a child being uh, knit together in, in the womb of its mother, it, those cells decide to become certain organs, to become certain tissue. It, there's, scientists don't know why. They just see it happening. They say there's, there's some sort of metaphysical mind behind it, and we know who that is. That's God. They literally look at it, and they say, we don't know how this happens, right? We know it does happen, and they kind of just say, we'll figure out one day. Yeah, you will. You know, Life is short. You'll figure out one day. Hopefully, it's before you die. But in the beginning, God created everything, and he's saying, look, guys, there's, you see it all around you, and this word is, is eternal. This word, the Greek word, I keep going to Greek, it's logos. The Greek word is logos. It's where we get the idea of um, dialogue and logic. It's this, this word, not only it, it communicates, it's not only is it, is it intelligent, but it communicates. It's personal. The logos is personal. We learn in verse 14, the logos, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's, you know, he's blowing everybody's mind because, again, in philosophy, the Greeks never thought, you know, God would um, ever become a man. Jews never thought God could ever, man could ever become God. This just wasn't something that they, they entertained, this, this eternal, the one that was transcendent above all things, becoming the word, uh, becoming, becoming flesh. But we'll get to that. I do think we will. Anyway, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So all things were made through him. Um, this, I could go, I, I won't go too much on to, to apologetics, but really this, this most theories, and I'm not going to say this um, completely unanimous decision on the fact that uh, the universe seems to be saying it's not eternal. It is, it is limited. It's finite. It was created at a point in time. But most theories, I mean, if you could put all theories down below you, let's say, like, act like they're a crowd of people and, and ask them, does the universe have a beginning? You know, 98% of them are going to cry out, yeah, yeah, it does. And then there's going to be a few scragglers that just don't agree with it. Those are just theories. But generally speaking, um, the, the theories all, they come back. What the, the models that scientists have come up with is constantly the thing that is most consistent is the universe had a beginning. The word made, he created, that, that explains to us what we understand about thermodynamics and things like that. Also, there's a thing in, within the cell, when I learned about um, cells, this was only two years ago, and you've heard, you, probably a lot of you heard about this in high school, but refreshed on this, there's something within the nucleus of a cell, um, of, I should say that, of an atom, excuse me, uh, that is referred to as atomic glue. And what it does is it holds things, it holds the negatively charged electrons together so that they don't separate. Because most of us have seen what happens when an, when an atom separates. It blows things up. That's where we get atom, atomic bombs from. Christ, we're told in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, that he holds all, all things consist in him. The word consist in Greek is they're set together. They're held together. We read in 2 Peter that there will, there will come a time where um, the earth will melt with a fiery heat, right? There's going to be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. But right now, all things are being held together by Christ. In the scientific field, it's called atomic glue. If you ask them what atomic glue is, they'll tell you they have no idea. 
because they don't know what it is. They have no idea why cells are held together. Because negatively charged atoms push each other apart, but yet they stay together unless we split them, which isn't a good idea. But um, all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. So there's this idea within. So John is confronting this Jewish idea that um, the life, the eternal life that is constantly offered to the Jews is is through the keeping of the law, right? It's through, and, and God sustains things. I'm not saying this is, this is the Jewish concept in the day, is that God sustains things because of the righteousness, the righteousness of the Jews who keep the law. We learn in Habakkuk, it's repeated in the New Testament, that just live by faith. If you're righteous, it's because of your faith before God and what he has declared to be true. John's saying that this life, He's going to say in um, verse 9, sorry. Yeah, that, um, sorry. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. The life that is available is that light that gives, the, it is available to every man who comes into the world. It's, it's available to all, not to the Jews, not just to the Jews. Said this life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not comprehend it, right? The other, otherwise sometimes translated as apprehend or overcome. It couldn't stop it. There's a darkness, but when, when the light is shined into the darkness, the darkness couldn't grasp it. It couldn't control it. When Judas comes in the night to betray Christ, he says, he says to him, this is your hour and the power of darkness. But here, uh, John is telling us that the light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't comprehend it. It can't overcome it, right? Or the other thought is just simply that this is another kind of slap in the face of the Jews, that where Jesus came, where that light came, we're actually told uh, in Isaiah 9 is to Israel, right? We're told that the light shone amongst um, Galilee, and it's dark there. That's what John is saying. He's, he's confronting them on their own, darkness, their own darkness within their heart. Verse 6 says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. Now you got to imagine John, right? Because you guys, you know the story of Zacharias. You know the story of Elizabeth. And then there's John. John grows up inside the, the, the house of a priest and he, we, we, we get the idea. He no doubt took that Nazarite vow, didn't cut his hair. He never had anything from the vine. He never had wine. And, um, he, as he grew up, you know, he clothed himself with camel's hair. He, he rebuked the, the Pharisees. And then as you think about it, there's kind of this, there's this correlation. There's this, um, this way that John, the apostle kind of relates to John, the baptizer, right? I say baptizer because he wasn't a Baptist. He was a baptizer. Anyway, not that many of you care about that. That was kind of a joke. I apologize. Uh, so this man, he came for a witness. John, when he first came, you read about it. He's, he's standing out before the Pharisees. He's calling them a brood of vipers. He's, he's telling them to repent. He's saying one, the one coming, he's coming with a sickle in his hand. He's He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then as Christ comes back from his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, John points to him. And he's with his disciples. John the baptizer points to Christ. And he's with his disciples. And he says, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Something, something seems to have happened within John, right, where he went back to the Old Testament because his whole the, this, this idea of Christ suddenly transformed in his mind when Christ stepped into the water with him. You guys remember from other gospel accounts that when Christ stepped into the water, he said, Lord, why am I to baptize you? You should be baptizing me. And he says, this will be done in order to fulfill all righteousness. Christ came to relate with men, not to repent of his sin, but to identify himself with men. And John, this man of, of fierce rebuke, of, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with fierce rebuke in the face of hypocrisy and people that are enslaving you. He saw something, I imagine, something totally different about Christ after he came up out of the water, right? The, the spirit descends upon him. Um, he rests on him. The, 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 it says in Mark that the heavens were literally ripped open and that God spoke, Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, and immediately was driven into the wilderness. Something happened with John. His mind's transformed. I think John picks up on this. And behold, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was sent for a witness. In the Greco-Roman world, that, that word used for witness is large. It's often used as a legal term, as, as someone that would actually be able to bear witness, to, to have a witness that would constitute as proof in a court of law. And he's saying, behold, this guy. And this guy's whole, and the reason why he, he has such a substantial uh, witness is because people recognized who he was and that he had a message that was from God. He had, uh, he had a, a very good track record, right? He was he abstained from things. He, he kept himself away from from dead bodies and and things like that. He remained clean, and and it transforms John. You kind of see that, and then you think of John. You think of John the Apostle because when he's writing this, he's really old in age. He's probably the youngest, right? The, traditionally, we understand John the Apostle as being the youngest who came to Christ, 15, 16 years old. And, and he was the one who identified himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. He doesn't identify himself by name. But at, even at the Last Supper, it uh, says, you know, the apostle whom Jesus loved, he laid his head on Christ's bosom, like on his chest. And, I mean, I imagine Peter big and burly. and It might be a little awkward with a big burly Peter laying his head. But this young, this young John, this man that's still growing up, that Jesus stood, um, that that when he stood before Jesus and he's on the cross, he said, John, behold my mother. Or, or, well, he says, John, behold your mother. And he says to Mary, behold your son. He then gives, he gives John ownership. He, he, he says, you're responsible for taking care of my mother. And with John, what you see is early on in the ministry, if you remember going through the Samaritan villages, Christ has already set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem to accomplish his suffering, the cross. And they're going through the Samaritan villages. Uh, John and James, they come out and they said that they've rejected you, Christ. Should we call down fire from heaven as Elijah did, right? And he's just, you guys don't even know what spirit you're of. Because the Son of Man didn't come to kill, didn't come to destroy, but to save lives. And he renames them the son of Boanerges, the sons of thunder, right? That's what John was known of. But then as known as then as you progress in his life he becomes known as the apostle of love remember what christ said he said about the one who's been forgiven much he loves much john lived nearly double the average lifetime of a jewish male and in, in that era 
if you if you live that long under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit, walking with Christ in that manner, recognizing how often you're forgiven, imagine the amount of love it's going to give you to forgive those around you, right? There's probably something in within John the Baptizer that Jesus that that John that John the Apostle recognizes so much. Jesus transformed this man's character. And you know what that says? That says there's hope for me. You know, that says there's hope for you. That says that Christ can transform us, that Christ will. And it's by, it's by the word. It is, it's the very first thing he introduces. It's the thing that Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And, uh, and so many other things about the word throughout the, throughout the Gospels. But this man was sent as a witness. Came, he came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all might believe. right? And there is a witness. There's actually one. There's called, he's, he's the faithful and true witness. He's the amen. That's Jesus. He's the one who says that if uh, we confess our sins um, to him, he is, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And that is, that is, he is just in the justifier of the ungodly. He can do that. There is a, there is a legal witness in the court of God. Actually, in um, Isaiah 43, it talks about God's, God's people that, that are actually God's people being those that stand in God's court as, as he, he rations out, as he deals with the just and the unjust. And one of these things here, and that, that of course, that's the same verse, the, the same chapter and verse that says that um, there was no God formed before me, neither shall there be after me. There's only one God for all the Jehovah's Witnesses listening, which I'm sure there's none. But um, that's Isaiah 43.10. There is no a God. There's just God. And we can talk about the other verses that talk about little G's. That's another topic. But there's only one divine God. Anyway, um. Uh, th- that witness that stands in God's court, he can he can legally legally he can take our fine, he can pay our fine, he can take our capital punishment that's been put over our head. We can have life through believing on His name. So, verse eight, he was not that light. That being John the Baptizer, he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. And of course, again, this this idea that the Jews. I mean, there was even a tradition that. Be, that be, began to be circulated by Jews, uh, which is, it's not biblical, it's not historical. But at Mount Sinai, the nations, 70 nations were offered to receive the law, and God lamented because all of them rejected it except Israel. And this is something that the Jews made up just to make themselves more heady. Israel was the only ones to receive it, and for that reason, they believed they were the only enlightened ones. They believed all Gentiles were unenlightened, but they were righteous because they received the law and they were enlightened. Verse 9 says, the true light gives light to every man coming into the world. He's, it's without partiality. He does that. God gives light to men. He gives them the light of their conscience to know that he's real. He gives them the light of creation around us to testify to his, to his existence. And he gives us the special revelation of the word to, to further explain who he is, what his character is like. Now it says, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So moving from John 
to Jesus, it says he was in the world. And this he uses world three times here. And what we end up knowing is that this is talking about the world of people. It's talking about the people that constitute the world. The world was made through him. The world didn't know him. It says, and he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Of course, that's the Jews. The Jews thinking they're so much better than everyone else because they have the oracles of God, which makes them blessed. They are blessed because they know the word, right? And this is a big deal because there was no printing press for even the first 1,600 years of the church, right? Not everyone had access to the word of God. Not everyone knew all the books of the Bibles. They couldn't quote Paul. They, we have this. We, that's why we should be able to, to come against false teachings, deal with cults, confront heretics, because we have the word. We're supposed to be responsible for doing that. But for them, they didn't have it. The Jews were all full of themselves because they had the word. And, um, but here John's saying, when he came to his own, his own didn't receive him. You guys think you're great because... You have the word of God, but even when the, when the word of God came to you, you rejected it. You think you're something because you have it, but you don't even know it. And that's something that we have to, are, are we reading the word? You know, Jonah Hadley, um, it's, Jonah Hadley is a pastor down, and he's a Calvary Chapel pastor down in Sanford. And um, recently he said something. He said, uh, Maturity is not shown by how much of the word you know, but by how much of the word you apply, right? It, it's, it's true. You're not spiritually mature because you know the word. There are, there are probably men that know the word that are complete atheists, but know it far better than I do in all of its original languages. Spiritual maturity comes through humility and faith, obedience, walking, walking in, in humility and allowing God to work through you. He, did, he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. You know, check your heart. I'm not condemning anybody. You're born again by faith in the Son of God. And that spirit that lives in you, that, that arose Christ from the dead, it lives in you. It quickens your spirit. God in the Old Testament said it's, all, it's been the same since the beginning. Ezekiel 36 and, and Jeremiah 31. It's, it's his spirit that's going to accomplish us to walk in the law of God. I'm not calling you to walk in legalism. I'm saying the Spirit's going to accomplish that in your life. He's going he's to work those things out in your life. But don't fool yourself just because you know what the Word says. As you see it bear fruit in your life because you approach it with humility, that's when you can know you're abiding in the Word, the Word which is Jesus. You're abiding in the vine. He's producing that fruit in you. Now, this, this is a big word. Verse 12 says, but, right? So he was in the world, verse 10, and the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but. And that's us. This is the big but for all of us. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. Amen. And that's how we're born again, is through belief on, on Christ's name, on the Son who came forth from the Father. As many as received him. It's a passive thing. It's, it's something that you, you receive him, you believe, but you don't do anything for. You don't work for it. The thing works in your life. God has, it says he gave the right, the authority, the power. Not that we have any authority of ourselves, but that being born again by God's spirit, we now have the power. We have the ability. 
we're made able to become children of God, born of God, born from above, the new birth. You can in no, in no wise see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. That's what he's talking about. To those who believe in his name, 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So the word, everyone recognizes God has come into the world. That's what John's saying in the opening of this verse. But now he's confronting them. He's confronting the philosophy. He's confronting the religion. He's confronting the people. He's saying he literally became a man. He didn't just dwell in his Shekinah glory and a tabernacle in the wilderness and a temple in Jerusalem. He literally became a human, right? Says John Bor John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law. It was, it was written on stones. Of tab, it was a tablet of stone. right? It was, it was given. There was something about the law. If you read in, in Exodus chapter 33, when Moses is receiving the law from God, he he. Um, there's so many things, you guys. If you think about what Moses saw, right? Because Moses, he grew up in the household of Pharaoh, but then as he realized his calling to to be the liberator of the Jews, he messed he messed some things up. But he he saw the plagues in wilderness in, in, in Egypt that God brought on the Egyptians. He saw the splitting of the Red Sea. He saw the manna come down from heaven. Right? He saw the water out of the rock. And then we get to this part in Exodus chapter 33 where it says, uh, Then he said, no, I'm sorry. Moses is receiving the law from God. He says, Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know that you may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that, that this nation is your people. And as, as they go through that, he wants to know that he can be confident that God is with them because if he isn't, they can't go in the wilderness. They're going to fail in the wilderness. And then as, as they, they work that out together, back and forth, he says, please, this is Moses, and please show me your glory, right? The Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And in, in chapter 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him, proclaim the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abounding in goodness and truth. He has a covenant goodness to himself. There is a covenant truth. There is, there is there's a graciousness to God. It's unchanging. It just couldn't be found through keeping the law. As he passed before Moses, what he saw, what Moses saw in just seeing his hind parts, he saw, he saw the heart. He saw the character of God. as Just part of God's glory was manifested to him. I, I think we can all understand the cry of the heart that says, I just want to see a miracle. I just want to see something that confirms to me that God is there. Right? But of his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. 
The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is if you have a Bible, you've seen the glory of God. To the skeptic, guys, seeing is believing. But to the born-again child of God, believing is seeing. When, when that becomes real in your heart, I'm not talking about things that have no um, evidential weight to them. I'm not talking about blind faith. I'm talking about true Greek, the, the word pistis, faith that trusts in something that has proven itself trustworthy. John, John says in, uh, well, he says in chapter 14, verse 9, when uh, Thomas says, show us, show us the Father and that will be sufficient. He says, how long have I been with you and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? John says later in the book, he says, there are many more things Jesus did, but, but these things were written, chapter 20, verse 31, but these things were written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's, there's a, very, a very specific reason that John wrote the things he wrote, the I am statements, the miracles that Jesus performed, the, the command over creation is that you might have life in Jesus Christ's name. When you can, when you can read of the eyewitness testimony, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. There is something within every single, every single person, whether we're aware of it or not, um, that we desire to experience God's glory, completely unadulterated, completely undiluted by uh, the fallen, by the, 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 the limitations of the fallen creation in which we dwell. There's something we desire to experience that glory. And, and one day we will. But right now we experience that through the word. We receive the word. The word washes us. It helps us to live a life of faith. Hebrews 12, 12 2 says, as we, as we direct our eyes toward the author and the finisher, the finisher of our faith. It's the word. He's become flesh. He's dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, John bore witness of him crying out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. He is eternal. He's um, pre-existent. I'm gonna, I know I've already read this, but, And of his fullness we have all received in grace for grace. It says, of his fullness. You guys probably know well. I think it's, I could be wrong, but I think it's Psalm 102. In the Old Testament, the psalmist says, the Lord is my portion. And so many of us think, we, we read that, and I could be wrong, but I know that as I read that, typically the understanding is that I get a portion of the Lord, and that makes up my week, that makes up my day, right? That's kind of, you know, I need, I need my stuff with Jesus in the middle of it, or I can't get by. But what the psalmist is saying is, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is, the Lord is my portion, Right? He's, he's what I have. He's what I received. And it says, of his fullness we have received. Guys, what is it that we thirst after? Because you can read through Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. The chief end of man is, is to know God, is, is to, to walk in his statutes and, and to glorify him, exalt him, glorify him, enjoy him forever. The Westminster Confession, and I know I butchered that. But um, essentially, that is that is the understanding of the first confession of the Westminster Catechism, right? Um, man, to know God and, and, and glorify him forever, to enjoy God and, and glorify him forever. It's of his fullness. There's enough there. It's overflowing. The cup is full. 
right? If Christ is your portion, you can be satisfied. You don't have you don't have to follow the lustful thirsts of your heart that want to lead you into other things. I'm not saying don't be productive. I'm not saying don't be the best at your job. I think you guys know I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is when you lay down at night, you can be content whether or not things didn't go your way because the Lord is our portion and of his fullness we have received grace for grace. That's like, it's better translated. I took a, you know, when, when the Lord kind of smacked me in the face with how, um, how huge grace is back in 2016, I took a class taught by Bob Hoekstra, and I know he's deceased now, and he was in 2016, so obviously it was recorded, a recorded class. But Bob Hoekstra, is, he's kind of like the pastor of grace. He's, he, I think he kind of went through the same thing I did with grace. He talks about this verse a lot, and uh, says it's better translated grace upon grace. It's this idea of the waves crashing up on the seashore. One crashes in, and as it rolls back out, another one rolls over the top. Grace upon grace, sustaining us driving us to live to live life because what he's showing is the law which was written on tablets of stone just commands grace and truth it comes in Jesus Christ it comes in a warm blooded personal human being it's tangible you can have a relationship with it it's real it's not a carrot being held out in front of you it's something you can know it's someone you can pray to and ask for help, right? I wrote that in uh, the memory verse, Matthew 7, 7. Ask and you shall receive, right? Um, knock and it'll be open to you. Jesus Christ is there. He's waiting. You know, Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, uh, there was, there's, a, there's a hospital. Am I right? I think it might have been a church. But I think it might have been a hospital too. It was, it was something of, of St. Saint, Saint Cross Hospital, I think. He said, and so in England, any passerby, if they knocked on the door, they'd open the door and they'd give them bread, right? That was just, they'd give them something to eat. And it was, it was an act of um, benevolence, charity. It was just to any passerby who, who wants some food, we have food for you. We provided it for you in the name of Christ. So he makes this point to say, if Christ is beckoning us to call, to, to ask him, to come to him, that he would provide why don't we go? Because his hospital, it has a bath. And we can walk in there covered in our grime and our mire, stained by sin, that crimson red. We can wash off in it. right? And he gives us a garment. He gives us a garment as pure as snow. And if we so desire, he'll, he'll armor us. He'll, he'll cover us with armor. He'll give us the sword of the spirit, right? Help us live out this life, the word of God. He's saying, why do we not boldly go to him when he's asking us to come? There are, he's, he, he's, he makes the, the contrast. There's so many people right, that knocked on that door, and they received bread. Jesus said, you, being evil, know how to give good things to your children. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him for it? And he'll, he'll take care of your needs. right? And again, I, I, don't need to, I don't think I need to say this. He's not saying don't do anything and God's just going to make your life easy and he'll provide, our, you know, walk in faith. you know. But as you walk and you commune with Christ, 
Don't be surprised when he blesses you with everything you need and a life abundant. Christ said on the, the high feast day, he cried out with a loud, a loud voice. He shrieked right to get everyone's attention. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and I will give him water. And from his heart, from his innermost being will flow torrents of living water. It will spill out of you. You'll recognize, wow, there's so many things I pursued in life that I did not need. Now that I know what I need is found in Christ, the word, the logos. He'll pour it and he'll make your life a ministry. Like, how's my life a ministry? Now, I don't know how it is. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. You know, maybe you've been quenching the spirit. But what I do know is when we come to Christ, we abide in the word. He makes it. We see it. We see the fruit. There is fruit. It's enjoyable. It's, it's found in the word. He's full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Right. And this goes back to, again, I, I'll bring up Exodus 33. When Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, he says, you can't. Right. You'll, it will consume you. You will die. So I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. No one's seen that undiluted glory from this side of eternity, right? No man has seen that glory. We long for it, but what it says here is the son has declared him. The son who is in the closest relation to the father, he has made that glory known. Made glory known? Yeah. He's made the heart and character of God known so that it can illuminate your heart so that you can have confidence in who God is, that his will is for you. He has declared him. It's, it's the same word we get from, uh, we, we actually get the word exegete from. He explains God in the context of scripture. You don't have to be scared of certain passages because you don't understand them. Christ has illuminated the heart of the mind of a believer that we can deal with certain passages, which certain people just don't even want to talk about, right? I go on campuses and I do, well, not now. I used to do campus ministry, but now with COVID, they don't let you do that. Um, set up a table and talk. And, and this issue comes up all the time. The God of the Old Testament. Well, and in the mind of a believer, I'm not saying it's anything of, of me, but it is the spirit that has illuminated me to understand and convey these things to people. So no, you can trust the character of God, right? Abounding in graciousness and loving kindness. That's That's what he says. That's what is revealed to Moses. We probably won't get much farther, but I'm going to start with the testimony of John. It says in verse 19, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So yeah, his answers kept getting shorter, right? No. Don't look at me, right? They ask him, they say, then they said to him, who are you that we may, give an, we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And what could he have said? There was a lot of things he could have said. I was a son of that great priest, Zacharias, right? I mean, maybe he wasn't the greatest priest, but Gabriel did, did show up before him, right? And then he was given this ministry. You know, he could even say, well, I was filled with the Holy Spirit from my mother's womb. Or, you know, Jesus said he was the greatest prophet born among women. 
is the greatest man born among women. Of course, there's more context to that verse, but none of those things did he say. He, he always points back to Jesus. This is the test. This is the witness. This is the record of John. Who, who do we say that you are so we may, uh, we may give an answer to those who sent us? And what he says is, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And I think um, the, the massive contrast I see here, and we're going to have to cross-reference another passage where the, the same thing is said, but with the, the first half of uh, John's response. The massive contrast I see is these religious leaders are constantly worried about how other men perceive them. Right, you you read that over and over again through throughout the gospel accounts that um, they did a certain thing because they feared the people, or they did a certain thing because they feared the chief priests and the scribes. They they did this, they did that. Right, it was the fear of men. It wasn't the fear of God. It says we need to give an answer to those who sent us. Right, the guys back in Jerusalem, and uh, in here what we have is John's response from Isaiah chapter forty verse three. But if you read in the the first passage of the gospel of Mark. It jumps right into it. Mark gets right to it. It says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2 of the first chapter says, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John says, I'm just a road worker. I'm just a guy on the construction crew and I'm calling you all to get on it too, Right? Get the obstacles out of the way so the Lord can sit on his rightful throne. Because the Lord's coming to his temple. Right? That's, what, uh, that's what we're told in Malachi 3.1. The Lord is coming to his temple. That first reference. But it says, behold, I send. Jehovah's saying, of course I'm pointing to myself. Jehovah's saying, I send my messenger before your face. You were sent by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. I was sent by Jehovah. I was sent by Yahweh. And this is the message I had to proclaim. Clean up, clean up the, um, clean up your heart. Essentially, I don't want to say clean up your act. Recognize the the idols in your heart. Make straight the way of the Lord. That was, that was uh, John the Baptizer's response. He said, "Make straight the way of the Lord," as the prophet said. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees. They asked him, saying. Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Right? Because they would baptize. The religious leaders were known for baptizing, but it was only for baptizing Gentiles, proselytes, into Judaism. They weren't, they weren't out there baptizing. They weren't, there wasn't a baptism for, of repentance for the remissions of sins being offered. That wasn't something they were doing. But, but John is confronting the religious establishment saying, you need to repent and be baptized. Be cleansed. Make make straight. Con, um, confront the issues within your heart that is keeping God away from the place he, de he deserves and desires to reign. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. And that goes back to what's said in verse 11. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Right? John's saying the literal word of God was standing among them and they didn't know it. Because it's not a head thing. It's a heart thing. right? How are you loving God and how are you loving your neighbor? That's what this is confronting us with.
Are you recognizing what Christ is calling you to in any given circumstance? You do not know. It is he, verse 27, coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And in the Jewish culture, loosing a sandal strap was considered such a lowly task, they wouldn't even let Jewish slaves do it. They would make Gentile slaves do it. If a master had a Gentile slave, it was considered. And then, of course, you understand why then Peter said, no, Lord, not so. Don't wash my feet. And he said, this is you, you want you have to allow me to wash your feet in order to be cleansed. He said, wash my whole body then. Right. Um, but he's saying of Christ, I'm not worthy to loose his sandals. These things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Bethabara is traditionally known as the place where. Joshua took the children of Israel from Canaan over the Jordan into the land of promise, into the land of Israel. You guys remember, no doubt, 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because they didn't trust God's promises. They come to the edge of the land. I think it's Numbers 12 and 13. And they send in the spies. The spies come back. What's the report? They say, oh, my gosh, the land. Holy cow, it flows with milk and honey. And look at this produce, right? Essentially, all of God's promises are true, but if we go over that, Jordan, we're like grasshoppers in those guys' sight, and we'll all die. So what God promised was true, but there's no way we can have it. There's no way we can have those promises. Of course, you know, Joshua and Caleb said, no, if the Lord said we can have the land, why don't we just go and take it? And sure enough, they get the blessing when they get into the land. They get the lands that they choose. Um, they're allotted to them. But anyway... At this point, when the Israelites finally come into the land, it is, it is by faith. It's by faith in the promises of God. They wandered for 40 years, and all of that generation except Joshua and Caleb died. They were the only ones that were there initially that entered the land. What John is saying here, right? Because you guys remember, I say that a lot. I, I trust a lot of you know in Luke chapter 3, um, when John is confronting the religious leaders. He says, don't think it of yourselves to say our father is Abraham because God is able to make um, sons of Abraham from these stones. And a lot of people think that the stones he's talking about, when, when Joshua came through that river, it says the children of Israel took 12 stones from the land of Canaan, placed it in the dry, the dry, on the dry land on the riverbed of the Jordan River, and took 12 stones out of the Jordan River and placed it as a memorial in the land of Canaan, the promised land. And we're, we're told in history that during Christ's time, those, those 12 stones were, were still there. It was a memorial to the faithfulness of God, to his promises, to walking in faith, right? You came into this land by faith. It's not because of ethnic heritage. You're born a child of God. The repentance is an act of faith. The, the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins is an act of faith and the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God who's providing everything for you. He got you over the Jordan and you're only here now because of God's faithfulness. Place your faith. It's not because of your righteousness. You can't live up to the law. Galatians 3 says the law is just a tutor. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ. It, it slays a man. Paul said, I thought I kept the law till I said, till I saw it said, thou shalt not covet. And I died. He recognized I didn't keep the law. But Christ came 
and of his fullness we've received grace upon grace. The law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I pray today and for the rest of the week, I pray we're back here on Thursday. I pray to God that our pastor is here on Thursday also. But I pray that as we walk, we walk in the fullness of what Christ has done and who Christ is, because that is John's message. And now let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, really just the intro to John chapter 1. Father, I pray that you're blessing the hearts and the minds of your saints. Lord, with your word, with your truth, I pray that it's wa- we're being washed by the water of the word and that we leave, that we, that we fellowship and we leave with confidence in who you are and what you've done. Lord, not in ourselves. Confident in the fact that you loved us while we were yet sinners and while we were yet enemies of yours. Lord, but not in our own ability. Father, I pray that we would just constantly seek to know you more, to know the testimony of you that is recorded in the scripture, and that by by reading, Lord, that we would believe, we would see these things, and that they would open our mind. We'd read of the signs, the seven signs that it is you perform, those miracles, and how they testify to you, to your command over creation and your deity. And the ultimate sign, the fact that you laid down your life as a ransom, for us who don't deserve it. Father, I love you. I know these people in this room love you. And we pray this all in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.